0: Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all and especially equipping for those who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm a discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And My guest this week is Eric Barreto. Uh, Eric is a, a professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And an old friend of mine. We were uh, in graduate school together, and he's a friend of the show. He's been on a number of times, a couple times a year over the last couple years. So I'm so glad to have Eric back on, especially because he is a, a scholar of Luke and Acts, and we have a passage from Luke this week that I've been dying to get his his insights on. So I'm really glad for that. Our passage is 24. Excuse me, Luke 24 verses 13 through 35. Luke 24. 13 through 35, the famous Emmaus Road story. If you find yourself enjoying the show today, uh, just press the share button on your podcast player app and you can pass the show on to others because that's the best way for uh, people to find out about the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text, find ways you can become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Eric. Okay, so we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 24, 13 through 35. If you'd be willing to read the passage, Eric, in whatever version you like, go for it.
1: Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread.
0: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for raising your son, Jesus, on the first day of the week and for not merely raising him up, but sending him forth to reveal himself, to appear to his own. And so we're thankful for this story and what it surely has to teach us today. Uh, So we ask for your spirit to be at work in Eric and I's conversation, as well as in the in the minds and hearts of all those listening in God grant us uh, mercy and patience when our eyes are closed, but moreover, grant us the grace that our own eyes will be opened, that the scriptures may be opened to us. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Hey man, thanks for being on the show. I've had you on before, We maybe have done, I think we may have done a passage from Luke once before, but it sounds like something I do. Yeah. I've annoyed you with, with other texts, (laughs) you know, here and there, uh, for fun had you in Matthew, had you in Exodus, had you on a Psalm. So I'm, I'm jazzed to get you in your wheelhouse. You are like a Luke X guy. So, Mm -hmm. and this is maybe one of, you know, if you were to think of like some of the. You know, unique stories to Luke that this would be on the shortlist of some of his most famous. So I'm, I'm jazzed to hear just like, what do you notice when you read this text fresh? I'm sure you've spent a lot of time with it before, but what's jumping out to you today? Yeah, it's such a
1: vivid story. And I think as we'll get into, I think it's really emblematic for Luke's narrative and Luke's theology. It's got all these elements of the story that come together in a really powerful way. All these themes that Luke has been weaving along the way all of a sudden run into each other in this uniquely Lucan and like vivid scene but to me the first thing I always notice is verse 16 but their eyes were kept from recognizing him and I like to always when I'm teaching or preaching this text dwell on that on that reality one to notice <laughs> that my English teacher would have hated if I wrote this their eyes were kept from recognizing him right it's a passive voice right right we don't know why they can't recognize Jesus is it about them and what they've been through? Is it about jesus and what he's been through does does the post-resurrection body look different is he wearing a mask before it was cool like it's not clear is it about jesus though i suspect that it has more to do with these two disciples and what they've just endured and i think we get a clue of that um, in verse 21 we had hoped we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel, and that hope is now gone. It's been snuffed out. It's been dashed on a Roman cross. So we had these high hopes. We walked with our friend for all those years, and that experience of seeing their friend terrorized and traumatized and killed in this way, I think, stuck with them. And, and it may be that they're leaving Jerusalem because they don't want to face the same destiny that Jesus faced. So are they fleeing in fear? uh fleeing for what f- it feels like they're fleeing for their lives. So all this weight of trauma and grief is with them. So it may be that Jesus looks different, but I kind of wonder if this has more to do with the experience of seeing your friend die this unjust death, to die like a martyr, to die like an innocent person. And they can't possibly imagine that it's Jesus in front of.
0: Them. Yeah, you wonder because yeah, it doesn't say, you know, he was unrecognizable doesn't say it as a fact about him. Although as the story continues, they there's a kind of disbelief when he appears again in the group. So you wonder, and of course, I mean, especially in the book of Acts, there are a lot of what are sometimes referred to as divine passives, right? These kind yep. of passive voice yeah. right. that could be read as a kind of- Leave space for divine activity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know what you think of that kind of reading of those passives and acts, you know, that, that, that would, that's contestable of course. But I like the ambiguity of it. Actually. I like the, you know, our English teachers are wrong. Sometimes a passive is exactly, <laughs> it works. I mean, the reason they push against the passive voice, I think is not just stylistic, but also it can lack clarity, Right. but, uh, but there's nothing unclear about the rest of the story. It's all very vivid and sharp. So this is a very, maybe a very intentional passive. To raise that question, perhaps even for us.
1: Yeah. And I think especially on a rereading, you know, if you're reading this for the first time, their eyes were kept from recognizing, maybe you don't notice it, maybe you don't question it, maybe you've read it 10 times and you don't notice it. But dwelling on it, I think, invites us to wonder, one, is this about Jesus? Is this about the disciples? Or like this other alternative that you're putting before us: is this about God? That had Jesus been recognizable to them, they couldn't have believed, they couldn't have experienced what they experienced. So there was all these steps, this proclamation that Jesus had to do all day with them, this explanation from the prophets, and then this profoundly emblematic activity of eating together, that all that needed to happen before he was able to be recognizable to them. Maybe they couldn't understand who he was until all these other steps had been taken.
0: Yeah, and there's certainly, of course, the text itself doesn't require only one reading. So, And they're not actually mutually exclusive, right? No, I think that's right, yeah there could be some divine orchestration behind the scenes there could be something strange about jesus and his mode of appearing but there's more than enough evidence in what they have to say especially when it says they stood there sad yeah yeah
1: they've been devastated they've been run over and i and i hadn't thought about this before john but i wonder if in verse 16 if it is if this is kind of a divine passive of sorts is there a, a mercy here, something of God's grace here that they couldn't recognize him? Because to come to face-to-face with a resurrected Jesus after what they've seen, after what they see, what Rome did to his body, maybe it was too much for them to bear. And maybe it's the same reason why he disappears at the end of the story, because all they can do is is catch, this a glimpse of him as he is before he's taken from their sight.
0: Yeah. So if they were you mentioned this we don't have to camp on it but whether they're fleeing so i'm trying to remember how long a sabbath's day walk would be of course this is more than i, I just can't remember I, I of course that's a phrase a sabbath's day walk is used to describe distances sometimes but i'm trying to remember if of course this isn't a sabbath it's the day after but i'm trying to kind of like account for like why didn't they flee sooner, sooner right yeah. but of course the sabbath day would not have been an option and then it would have been nighttime, and that's not a terribly safe time to travel, especially in the Judean Desert. Right, yeah. which you don't have to get too far outside Jerusalem to be in some scary places. You know,
1: be sure. Boy, you got the story of the Good Samaritan to remind exactly, us what right?
0: That's right. You know, at
1: the end of twenty-three, it does say on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So Luke has them resting on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. and then the women go prepare. So the same day it's the same day when the women discover jesus at the tomb right this all happens and rsv says verse 13 it's like seven miles from jerusalem is where they were going to emmaus but all these distances are often tricky to, to sort out
0: but i mean the the point at least stands that that uh even though there was an initial fleeing on good friday that's running into hiding they're not necessarily leaving town they're there for the passover right they flee from jesus side and you know of course it's possible you know, a few people headed back to Galilee right away, but most likely they were all planning on staying for the for the week, right? For the right. you know, I mean Feast of Unleavened Bread's a week long, right? So I think you're right. I think I see them kinda on their way. They're going to Emmaus, but these are Galileans. That becomes clearer later when it says the follow right, don't they hint at that, that they've been with them from the beginning.
1: From the beginning, yeah.
0: So oh. these are Galileans, they're they're heading home. Parallels a little even the the fishing scene in John 21 right the kind of the notion of giving up and heading home
1: yeah yeah that even their journey away from Jerusalem is an embodiment of that had hoped the hope is now exactly. gone we're going back
0: and funny enough that the report from the women is apparently not enough to get them to stay in town
1: <laughs> oh no right because it um right they took it to be idle talk
0: right it said that earlier right
1: now verse 11 these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them so believe them enough to recall it, to think that's strange, but not to believe it.
0: Huh. No. We had hoped. They did not find the body.:
1: That's another little detail. The, the, heat, the heat we had hoped and they stood still looking sad is another place I think that we can dwell. You know, and in the season that we've endured, that we're still enduring, you know, the, the ways that our hopes are lifted up and then dashed, it's just something to sit with not something to run past. Because we think we've all had those moments in our own lives and we had high hopes that were disappointed. But time sometimes wipes that away from our memories in ways that it feels less sharp. But this might be a helpful recollection that there are people in our communities who are precisely in this moment of having lost hope. So as we're preaching, as we're teaching these texts, you have people who've healed from their hopelessness and people who are dwelling in their hopelessness and people who are headed into moments of hopelessness. So to remind them that this is part of the walk that we take um, strikes me as important. And I hadn't thought about this before, but an interesting frame to where the narrative starts uh, with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, where their hopes for their own lives had kind of probably been raised and dashed over and over again. And then the the assurance of the, the promise of this birth of John the Baptist then is the fulfillment of that hope in an unexpected... And I think still challenging way for Elizabeth and Zechariah, if we re- reread that narrative. So it might be interesting to frame the whole narrative around people who have kind of gone beyond hope and had these promises fulfilled to them in, in the, the least opportune, least expected time.
0: Yeah. When hope disappoints. Yeah. And there you get a, a closing of the mouth temporarily, Yeah. just like we have here, a closing of the eyes temporarily. Oh, so there's a kind of yeah. interesting parallelism to explore there. Yeah. And the temporariness I think of is relevant in both cases. Yeah. Whatever the call, co- you know, and I mean, in that one, it's even pretty clear that the angel's kind of doing this to him, but it's kind of because of some step he's missing, you know, and it just kind of happens when it gets unleashed. And
1: we were just talking about that text in class the other day and thinking about, I'm uncomfortable with imagining that that activity of disablement is a punishment because I think that has really problematic repercussions for how we treat neighbors who cannot speak or cannot hear or are not able to see um, so i, I want to be careful whenever we associate disability and punishment or affliction so one of the ways that yeah, and we it's were not that about
0: straightforward that, in that story no, it's that is the the, ceiling.
1: is is the muting of zechariah space for him to listen so it's less <laughs> less an affliction and more an opportunity for him to actually hear the promises that were made to him to dwell in them to live in them And I don't know what Luke had in mind when he was writing that, right? He made me think, you know, disabling as a punishment is just fine. But I think there's space for us in the narrative for us to think differently about what's happening with the the eyes of these disciples and the mouth of Zechariah in a way that maybe doesn't harm our neighbors who have disabilities along the way.
0: Yeah, and to not be too harsh, even though, of course, Jesus you know, oh, foolish and slow <laughs> of heart. But I mean, he gets to say that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, yeah. to have Geez, a little- Jesus, we're not. Yeah, yeah, to have a little <laughs> recognition, little patience to, to see that there's a bit of a mystery around this, this yeah. closing of eyes. Well, let's take a quick break and come back to score some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest Eric Barreto, and we are looking at Luke chapter 24, 13 through 35. So there was two things that jumped out at me today that I wanted to, you know, just get your reaction to take on. We can spend short or long on this and then go wherever where else we want. But two things I noticed, one was, I think I've noticed this before, but it grabbed me differently you know, this is this is very, the passage is crafted very carefully with some inclusio at beginning and end, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously we already discussed the the eyes were kept from recognizing him, paralleling, um, then he opened their eyes and they recognized him. So it's very clearly parallel there. But what I failed to notice, and it was kind of fresh in my eyesight today, was kind of right before that at the beginning and right after that, there's this phrase of them talking pros, you know, allelus to one another, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, which can seem like just a passing phrase. But there's the core, of course, of the the story is them conversing with Jesus, right? And so before he comes, they're talking to each other after he leaves, they're talking to each other. Oh, interesting. And so then that framing makes me think of like, then the content, then it made me want to compare and contrast the content of what they're saying. So 14, they're talking to one another regarding all the things which had come to pass. And then 15, the narrative kind of takes a turn and it came to pass right while they're talking with that kind of that sort of septuagint style phrasing there Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but then at the end it's they say to one another you know did not our hearts you know burn while we were talking while he was talking to us on the way you know as he opened the scriptures to us paralleling the word opening of the eyes same verb again i don't know maybe there's no significance to that but it's just kind of like thinking about what we say to one another you know what they're saying to one another looking back and reflecting on events, right? Yeah. And then Jesus appears and it's a the conversation has a shift. Although it's also looking back, looking back at the law and the prophets, let's see what they have to teach us. And then when he's gone, there's a okay, now what do we talk about? And it's reflecting, but now it's reflecting not on what had taken place further back, but what was going on inside us that whole time, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm although maybe there's a little special pleading there. Wait, wait, we did did start to recognize him, didn't we? (laughs) There's something happening
1: here, which of course there was, right? They were in Jesus' presence and they didn't know. This is fascinating. I wonder if there is something here about where Acts will start. So Acts will start with Jesus calling the disciples, those gathered around him to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And is there here a picture of that shape of that witness? That witness relies, depends on people being in conversation with one another that is not just what Jesus has done for me and that I get to do it to others because they have no idea what Jesus has done for them, but this understanding that Jesus has moved in each and every one of our lives in all these different communities. And part of witness bearing that we're called to is to share those stories about how Jesus moved in our lives and maybe even to expect that Jesus is often present among us in ways we are not aware of, that we don't anticipate, that we don't expect. So that witness bearing perhaps is less. Uh, it emerges less from certainty about that I know all the things that Jesus might be, all the things that he might do, to this openness that Jesus might be doing things we didn't anticipate, that we didn't expect, that he's with us in a way we, that we weren't able to recognize until we have this encounter with Jesus and with one another.
0: That adds some significance to only having one of the names of the two. Yeah. Right? Kind of Although invites Simon us. could be the other one, it's a little confusing
1: about exactly yeah. who is being referred to. But I think the other piece that takes me back to, to Luke's prologue, to think about how he says, you know, I talked to eyewitnesses and servants of the word, that from the very first pages, Luke acknowledges his debt to others who were witnesses of the story, and that he had to rely on them and trust them for the story that they told. And we find ourselves then as, as witnesses to the story in much the same way, having to rely on the witness of others, not just the written other Luke, but those around us as well, who are experiencing Jesus, encountering Jesus, maybe in ways that we don't understand, that we don't recognize, but that 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 witness is um, ingredient to what it means to be a follower of Jesus.
0: And they're even already starting. This actually ties right into the second thing I want to bring up. But they're already starting to kind of bear witness because they're yeah. kind of talking to Jesus like he's a stranger that doesn't know the story. Yeah, they're beginning to bear witness with what they've got. In conversation and with a stranger, yeah, it has all the all the elements of of these things that Acts, you know, unfolds for us in in fullness. But then, as often happens in Acts, I'm thinking of Peter and uh, Cornelius, where Peter's doing the talking and then the like the Spirit kind of says, "Shut up! I got something to do here," and interrupts him and does the and, and to recognize again, not with language of the Spirit yet here in 24, but there is a kind of implicit sense that. Jesus, by his spirit, is the one who's doing the converting, who's doing the eye-opening, right? Uh, and we're just bearing witness. So, to not think of Luke and Acts as like, Jesus does something, he hands the baton, and now we do it, right? Mm-hmm, right but recognizing right. he's still living and active, yep. he's doing something that maybe we don't have the words to say, but maybe the heart is burning even as you hear the story because yeah. of what Jesus is up to. And our place in that is to have conversation and bear witness to what we have seen uh, or to what we've heard that others have seen. I like that Acts connection. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: sorry to dwell more on Acts, but this has me thinking that this whole notion of passing the baton, I think, is, is a real problematic approach in so much of the ways we read Acts, right? That we've got the story about Jesus, and then, yeah, Jesus ascends, and we're done with Jesus, and now we're moving on. Maybe he makes some cameo appearances to Saul on the road to Damascus. I think that gets it backwards to think about so the the prologue to acts i think nrsv translates it all the things that jesus did from the beginning didn't taught from the beginning when actually i think it should be translated all the things that jesus began to do and to teach that he's still doing he's still teaching he's still living and active so to think about our witness then of the resurrection uh, of a resurrected jesus as a witness that's living and active because the person to whom we are witnessing is himself living and active among us still?
0: Yeah, you don't want to turn the doctrine of ascension into a functional reversal of the doctrine of resurrection, which is sometimes what we accidentally do.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's he's gone to his throne, and and we're just waiting for his return. When you know, when the the ascension uh, narrative in Acts one, it's in the middle of that narrative that they're beckoned uh, that you know the Spirit will give you power, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that means that Jesus goes with us. It's not ascending where Jesus hangs back or hangs up in the in the clouds, but one where Jesus goes with us, and one in which Jesus will return in the same way that he went up. And I think that is apocalyptic, eschatological, the sense that there is this ultimate return. But maybe that that his departure is never is never an escape, right? It's always his presence within us.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. That's really helpful. Well, that, that link to acts actually was the other thing I wanted to run by you is I noticed something today that I'd never noticed in this passage. And now I don't think I'll ever unsee it unless you talk me out of it. Um, (laughs) that this starting verse 19, 19 B 19 a, by the way, is just plain hilarious when Jesus is like, what things? Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> so adorable. And they're like, uh, <laughs> and then
1: respond, "Have you not been on Twitter, Jesus?" <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, from 19 B to the end in 24, you've got basically structurally, though without key terms, so the substance isn't there yet. The mm. structure. This is like the speeches in Acts. Mm. It has the structure. You see it. Yeah. It just blew me away as as while you were reading, I was just kind of following along, and I'm like, this feels like a story in Acts where something happens. Like Peter
1: and Cornelius, like, and yes, and yeah, chapter yeah, two, yeah.
0: chapter three, yeah. but even oh, Paul's in chapter thirteen or fourteen. It is when we get one of his sermons, they have these this basic structure: a little bit of information about the beginning. You know, he went around doing good, or sometimes there's reference to John the Baptist. There's there's some you know some element from the story in the earlier days of Jesus right and then a narrative of his of his death his you know being handed over again that's described different ways but this corresponds with that and then of course they always hinge on that turn of you know but God raised him from the dead and then yeah. some things about his glory and such but structurally that's that's this it's just it just at the heart of it the, in verse 21 is the we had hoped yeah but now it's been, you know, three days and, and then 21, 22 ends up being the turning point, but they don't see it. It's yeah. like, they're already, they're already preaching Pentecostal sermons without mm. realizing it, you know, idea. but rather some women came to us. Like, it's like, they've got it. It's almost already it's there. Almost there. It's just something yeah. it's the encounter with him is missing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit's missing. Right. There's something missing that just kind of almost, I don't know, it just. It fits what you were saying earlier when you linked it to witness that the structure and flow of witness is already emerging here, but it's you know lacking kind of something crucial in terms of substance and power. But I don't know. How does that strike you?
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I I hadn't noticed that parallel, but it does look they do this all the time in Acts, right? There's like these short stories that takes this long narrative that we have in Luke and Acts and summarizes it down. So I think it's fascinating to think about the that the witness. Is kind of already there, but is still something is still missing. And I wonder if we might think about what the the missing part is, because I wonder if the we had hoped isn't what's missing, right? It's not at this moment. They should be in a place of hopelessness. They haven't seen the risen Jesus. They, or at least they don't, I guess they have, but they didn't know they'd seen the risen Jesus. Yeah, and empty All tomb's they saw, not enough. A body could be stolen, right? Right. All they saw was the power of death. That that's what they've encountered and they need something else. And if it's the presence of Jesus, then I wonder what that means for those of us who don't get to see the risen body of Jesus in, in, in this way, right? He doesn't show up to us in quite this way. Um, so, what is it that they're missing? And I wonder if what they're missing is trust in the stories that others have told, right? They they have the women's testimony, but it's just an idle tale to them. So, is again, this might go right back to witness is witness isn't just about bearing witness about what Jesus has done for us, but how do we lean into that belief and the witness of others about what Jesus has done for them? Not in any naive sort of way that everyone can have their own story about Jesus, but this assumption that Jesus is always moving, has always moved, again, in unexpected ways that we haven't always anticipated. So, is this part of the witness, what's missing in this witness isn't the presence of Jesus, because he's with them already they just don't know it and it's not because they don't really believe in some dogma but because they actually didn't believe the women it was right there for them to to believe
0: yeah that that hope and trust mediated through the community is central in the story right and it's it is it, again in their action if we say it if we if you, we would said earlier that in addition to what they're saying about their loss of hope that maybe even their walking away is an embodiment of that. What happens at the end? They go back to Jerusalem, they go right? back. Right. Yeah. They, they don't even have to be, and he doesn't give them that instruction. They just know that it's that return to the very witnesses that they, you know, didn't entrust themselves to. I think that's really good. That witness thing. I mean, I mean, they even have that secondary witness of, 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 you know, some of them, you know, went to the tomb, you know, I know there's a, textual question about verse 24 but but at least you know the women who went and saw i mean they even have of they mention a vision of angels in verse 23 and then the words of the angels right so you get a you have a word of witness you know and they were saying actually the greek there's a little weird can you help me with this at the end of 23 they were saying of him to be alive What is that at the end of 23? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I just kind of was like, it's, it's a little kind of an odd phrasing, but I mean, there, there actually is the proclamation of Easter. The good news is here, right? And they're literally bearing witness to it without knowing it. It's hilarious, right? They've got, they've got the witness of the women and they've got the words of the angels. That the women handed on to them so they're in the street they're in the same situation where we are in it's almost making me think of the thomas story right where it's like blessed are those who without seeing believe right yeah. we're kind of invited to be in the position they are before the appearing right. and for that to perhaps be enough so
1: interesting that these these two disciples might be kind of um transitional figures Yeah, sure they were witnesses to jesus the resurrected jesus but they were also they didn't get to see the, the empty tomb
0: that's but right. they still
1: had to come to believe in that witness of the empty tomb.
0: Yeah, so they're already in that secondary position a little bit yeah, more like a, us. Bed, yeah. 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 But they
1: look more like us than maybe they look like um, the women who were yeah. there.
0: Yeah. Did you see what I was talking about in 23, the end of there? Did you happen yeah. to notice that?
1: So is it the Hoy Legu Sin Auton? Yeah. Zing?
0: Yeah. I think it's just they were saying,
1: like, so they were saying, alive is he. So it's this little short noun sentence at the end. It there. was
0: just the the accusative of the he was what kind of...
1: Right, looked a little funny to me. It's the content of the of the saying. It's
0: because it's it's so it's inaccusative because it's following the verb of okay. saying. Okay, like they were saying about him that he's alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, that, that that's makes
1: my sense. Guess, but
0: it could, that's what I assumed. But I just wanted to check to see if I was missing something because in a way, that's the the east the the Easter proclamation is already in their little sermon here that they're preaching to Jesus. <laughs> I think it's really funny that the first the structurally ah, first we're uh both wrong. we're
1: both wrong uh, zane is a pre- present active infinitive it looks like an accusative
0: it sure does but it's, doing, <laughs> it's doing
1: indirect discourse with the infinitive that's what and then then out on then is is the accusative subject of the infinitive
0: speaking of him to live yeah,
1: yeah. okay it's a way of doing indirect discourse which course, nice i forgot <laughs>
0: yeah no that's all right that's what i was curious what did you just look up there what'd you pull off this the shelf is, uh, oh this is Expensive, but helpful yeah. a
1: little, a little commentary on the, the handbook and the great text These are from Baylor University Press.
0: Ah, yeah. And it just kind of
1: goes through and does anything that's a little weird. They like talk that. about explain yeah. it.
0: that's great. So it's like Max and Mary, but like way more in de- detail. Of yeah, the there's world.
1: a great one for Acts, and they just released a new one. It's a two volume. It's it really that's goes great. in a lot of detail.
0: It's really no, I dark. love it though. Well, telling, but I mean, li- our listeners are always looking for resources, so it's nice yeah. to know that, 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 that pricey, that's but out there. Really great. I can imagine. It was pretty thick, yeah. So, anyway, thanks for that. So it's just indirect discourse there, but but I mean, but that's almost perfect, though. The I, mean, I know we're just Greek geeking for a moment, but indirect discourse kind of almost makes the point that that's where they're at. They're mm-hmm, they're not mm-hmm. directly saying God raised him from the dead. Right. They haven't they're embraced about what somebody this yet. else said. They're saying what somebody else said that somebody else said. It's actually two mm. steps removed. The oh, angels,
1: right? Yeah. right? Yeah. Interesting. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. even
0: the women are just reporting what they saw. It's not yet the, he is risen, he is risen indeed. It's a, an angel told us he's risen.
1: Uh, someone heard an angel say that he is
0: risen. Right, you see it? So in a way, the indirect discourse almost fits because it undermines the power of the kind of direct proclamation no. that is right there, right there, <laughs> just, just outside their capacity right now. No. And, how, and that's where, I mean, maybe we're going to sermon stars here, so let's take a break. But I mean, how often are we there that that's all we've got? Yeah. But even in that moment of losing hope and in sadness, we still have a story to tell. So we right. tell what we do have access to. Well, I know someone who saw something. Mm-hmm. I know I heard from someone what they heard. And right. that might be all I have to offer today. Right?
1: right. And that maybe faithful witness is always being on
0: the cusp of seeing the next thing yeah, that God yeah, is yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is this is good. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore that some more. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Eric Barreto and we're looking at Luke chapter 24 verses 13 through 35. So let's explore some sermon starters. We've already kind of dropped some hints along the way, but what uh, suggestions might you have next time you're going to preach on this? What might your focus be or what general advice might you have? Where where do you you want to run with this today? A couple things
1: come to mind. One is to kind of keep in our preaching the narrative element of the story it's such a powerful story it has all these little details it's so well constructed so can our preaching help point to that narrative power not just as a, a rhetorical flourish that Luke engages in but because precisely in the storytelling that he's engaged in, he's telling us something important so for example something important about the nature of of witness as we've been talking all along, and what does it mean for us to be witnesses of a resurrection that happened long ago where we weren't there, where we have to rely on the witness of others, these generations of other people who've come before us who've talked about Jesus, who've experienced his presence in their lives, and that it's it's a witness all the way down. It's trust all the way down. I think there's one place to go. Second, we talked some about thinking about that we had hoped and the kind of dashing of hopes, that, which happens daily to so many of us. So is there a moment there for us to see those that dashing of hopes that hopelessness not as a detour away from faithfulness but as part of the walk of faithfulness that we all will encounter in some way or in another but for me the the biggest thing is what happens at the end of the story so they um, spend all day with this jesus they hear his voice they see him they don't see him right they they smell him right so
0: they're walking in the heat of the day Yeah, and that little seven-mile detail implies this is a good good walk, a couple hours, yeah. That maybe during the walk, they reach
1: out and put their hand on his shoulder. um, So, they see him, they feel him, they experience him, but they don't recognize him all day. Not even when he is teaching in the way that he's been teaching for all those years, right? He's going back into the prophets, interpreting to them what they mean. They only recognize him when he does the most Jesus thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke. And the most Jesus thing he does apparently isn't teaching, although he does a lot of that. And is not dying on the cross because I think for Luke, the cross is a tragedy to explain more than a, a moment to celebrate in, in his accounting. But the thing that characterizes Jesus' life from the beginning to the end, apparently, is that he loves a good meal. He's a really good host.
0: And there aren't there more meals in Luke than any of the other Gospels? Doesn't he have more he's, meal scenes than the He's accused
1: of being a glutton and a drunkard. Yeah, right. Which makes me want to hang out with Jesus that much more. Apparently, it's an insult to other people, but he's eating all the time. He's like Tony Soprano on the <laughs> uh, He's always eating because the the meals that he has with sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees alike are not just situations for Jesus to or se- settings for Jesus to proclaim the gospel. They are the gospel taken flesh. That belonging that people experience at those tables is good news. He is delivering people. He is saving people at these tables. So I think it's striking that it's the most characteristic thing that he does. The most Jesus thing he does is to take bread and to share it with his friends. That's when their eyes were opened. That's when they can recognize him for who he is. And then he's gone from their sight. And what they have left with them is this burning in their hearts, this renewed hope. And this desperate need to walk back seven miles and to tell other people what they had just experienced. So there's something about the breaking of bread. And I think here, this ordinary everyday activity that we all engage in, that is not just, um, a pathway to preaching, but is itself a form of proclamation of the good news.
0: Yeah. And it has these, these four verbs that we've seen before taking the bread he blessed it and breaking, he gave it to them. So that's the big four, right? Yeah. Take, bless, break, give, right? And this has appeared before in Luke with some variation in the other gospels as well, including not just at the last supper, but also at the feeding of the 5,000. So, that's so there's meals that continue and you're right about meals, but it's interesting. And there, that's when it says, then the eyes were opened at the kind of that whole thing, right? But then when they narrate it to the others, they zoom in on the breaking of the bread, right? Isn't that interesting, right? How they had, yeah, what had happened to
1: them in the breaking of the bread,
0: yeah. Yeah, and of course, I mean, in some ways that's just a synecdoche for the whole of, and, but it's another ax connection though, because that that becomes a phrase then in ax, right? Devoted themselves to, and it'll list things, and breaking of the bread will be in the list. Number of times that phrase appears. So there may be nothing special about the breaking, but it is interesting that they even add that little detail right at the end that he became known to them in the breaking of bread as if he's. I mean, we often talk about the Last Supper as instituting the Eucharist, and okay, sure, that's true, but there's a way in which it's also kind of being instituted or maybe reinstituted at this meal you know yeah, yeah. Uh, at the first post resurrection supper and you know there's a tendency in our churches to reduce the meaning of the lord's supper to to the death perhaps because of the way that paul talks about it in 1 corinthians but i mean the cue here is this breaking of the bread this sharing of a meal is something we do with the risen christ and that's yeah. where we that's where the eyes really get open and you're right it is it is funny that Seeing him in the flesh is not enough. Hearing him teach about himself is not enough. It's yeah. it's breaking bread together. That's what really opens the eyes.
1: Yeah, it's know? this moment of revelation. It's this moment where they recognize and the knew who he is, but also who they are. And I think too, while I, I do think there are elements here of the Eucharist, I wonder too if there's something kind of even ordinary every day, that there's the everydayness of that meal, yes. that unadorned you're on the road, you've got some bread, you're eating with a stranger. There's something ordinary and everyday about this. So Mujerista theologians like Ada Maria Sazi Diaz talks about lo cotidiano, the everyday as this locus of revelation. And here I see a really powerful instance of that. There's You take something so ordinary and everyday as eating, And you infuse that with the possibilities of God's presence and the way that God can draw us together. And I think there's real power there in proclaiming that so that every time we break bread with one another, certainly on Sunday mornings when we do the Eucharist, but also when we are gather with our families or with a stranger or even by ourselves in some unknown place, that that is an act of inviting Jesus into our lives and an invitation to always keep our eyes open to the ways that Jesus is present around us.
0: No, that's so good. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that Luke's the way he spreads the meals out over the whole book. Mm -hmm. And again, because of the Passover associations with the Last Supper, it's very easy to kind of get in a very ritual mindset about the so-called Eucharist or communion or whatever. And that's why this phrase is so powerful that's, I believe, introduced for the first time here. I'd have to double check that, but this recurring phrase then in the book of Acts of breaking bread, which is never can never be reduced to the notion of some kind of ritual, Right. act of worship even if it's in a house it, it it means they're sharing doing common life together they're eating meals together that's the focus so that somehow in the ordinariness of the common meal is where our eyes are really opened you know I wonder
1: if that phrase might help us take those rituals and lean them into the everyday and take the everyday breaking of bread that we do and lean that into uh, the ritual into the ways that yeah
0: we,
1: uh, kind of find patterns for our lives to help make sense of a really complicated world.
0: Yeah. Well, that's really good, man. I love that the application of this passage is, uh, yeah, go have a meal.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's power in that. There's power in that. There's power in the sharing of bread. And, and to expect that sharing of that meal to be revelatory is, uh, I think, transformative for us.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we got a couple different ideas. We got, we got in terms of just preaching, I mean, it's a couple different directions that, you know, you can go the entry point, of course, in terms of when the hopes are dashed and there's more of this, there's a little bit more of this kind of bearing witness and trusting the testimony side. And then there's this kind of, this focus on the, the breaking bread as the culmination. And, and maybe the two, I mean, if you, if you, if you hug the text and go in a narrative way, you can really end up making both of those points along the way. Because the breaking of the bread also helps to set limits on notions of witness as this like activity of achievement, right? Right, right. Yeah. I bear witness. I say what I've heard. I say what I've seen. I say what others have said they've seen, maybe with a little more confidence, having received the spirit from on high. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Thanks yeah. be to God. But nevertheless, all I've got words, right? All of them. Yeah. And words come to a close. And. It's the work that Jesus is doing in the, in the stirring of hearts and the burning of hearts, as well as the hospitality of sharing a meal together yeah. and let, letting that bear witness at some kind of deeper, more embodied level beyond yeah. just words. Because really, the, we really are bumping up onto the limits of thoughts and words here.
1: Sure. In two ways at least. One, because we never hear, this really annoys me, I wish Luke would tell us, we don't hear what Jesus tells them. It just tells it begins with the Mo- Moses and the prophets, and then we don't get a sense of the content of that. This happens again in Acts chapter 8 with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We never hear <laughs> what Philip that, tells yeah, the Ethiopian right? eunuch, which really, really frustrates me. There's that. I think that words kind of run to their limit. But second, because um, the way that Jesus disrupts the table, that they intend to be the hosts of this table ah, for Jesus, yeah. but then Jesus is the one that takes over. He becomes the host at this table. And I wonder, especially for Christians in this country where so often we are often in positions of power in one sense or another, that we are very comfortable with imagining ourselves being hosts of other people. But here, maybe what this passage is calling us to is to imagine being hosted at someone else's table where the food isn't as recognizable, where I'm not in control of the timing and how the story uh, and how the, the the meal goes. That that discipline of being hosted by someone else and expecting to see in that host something of the presence of Jesus is maybe a um, really helpful way to kind of flip the the, the story of hospitality upside down. Yes. Again, I think we're really used to being hosts and harder to be hosted.
0: Yeah. And even to experiment with what does it mean when I'm in a place where I, I can have the posture of hospitality, as a host <laughs> and to let my guest host a little bit,
1: you know, and to release <laughs>
0: some of the power that comes with my yeah. host status yeah. and to have some hope that, that might open my eyes. You know, I might see something that I'm not going to see because as long as, as long as I hold the power in the relationship with a neighbor a stranger, a friend, even as long as I'm having, holding some kind of power over them, I'm not really seeing them, you know, there's there's always limits in what I'm really seeing, and you really start to see someone when you let go a little of your, you know, presiding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your my my status as the one presiding over the conversation. Yeah.
1: We intend to host these meals, and then Jesus messes with us.
0: Yeah. 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 Let them ruin your meal. Yep. Let Jesus it's ruin right, dinner. There okay, we go. There's the sermon. There you go. Well, thanks so much, Eric. I had a great time talking the scriptures with you. I always learn so much when we, when we get together. So thanks a million for the time. I
1: Thank you, John. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music and thanks for all the supporters of the show, especially those who support us financially. If you'd like to become a, a patron saint of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.